open your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to look this morning at Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. This Advent season, we've been looking at some key prophecies from the early chapters of Isaiah that together build up uh, Israel's messianic hope. Their hope that one day a king would come and restore justice and redeem his people. So this morning, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we're looking at Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Listen as I read God's word. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This is God's word. What are you anticipating? What are you looking forward to? What are you hoping for? Maybe there's a hint that you've been dropping for months for a Christmas gift. Younger guys, maybe it's a new Nintendo game or, or maybe it's a, a piece of jewelry or a power tool that you keep hinting how helpful it would be around the house. And maybe you're really hoping on Wednesday that someone in your family picked up on the hint and under that tree is going to be a new power tool or jewelry or video game, whatever you're anticipating. Or maybe you're really looking forward to time off in the next week or two. Or looking forward to your boss taking time off in the next week or two. <laughs> or maybe you're looking forward to the start of a new year, a new decade even. After all, there's no denying it. 2020 means the future. We're finally there. But seriously, maybe for you a new year means a fresh start. Maybe a new year holds a glimmer of hope that things might be a bit better, that life might seem worth living. What are you hoping for? What are you anticipating? Isaiah's words in our passage this morning are designed to give hope to a people in despair. And Isaiah tells his people, tells Israel, that they can have hope for one day God would send his king. This morning, I want to consider three hopes in this passage, three hopes that Isaiah points his people towards. The first hope that Isaiah points us towards is this. One day, the king will come in a surprising way. The king will come in a surprising way. We see this right in verse 1. 
In the verses just before this, if you look back at 10, 32, 33, 34, uh, Isaiah gives a warning of judgment. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great height will be hewn down and the loft will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon, the mighty forest, will fall by the majestic one. When you look around at all the mighty armies, Isaiah says, it looks like the redwood forest surrounding you, unshakable. But look again, says Isaiah, the Lord descends on this forest with terrifying power. He will fall this forest with an axe. And now in verse 1 of chapter 11, Isaiah asks us to consider another image. He says, don't worry about the mighty forest full of huge trees. The real action, what's really going on in the world, what's going to shape history is none of those trees. It's this stump over here. If the kings of the nations and the world powers are like mighty redwood trees, then David's line looks like a stump. There's nothing left to expect from it. It's a failed project. It's as good as dead. But Isaiah says, look again. There shall come forth a shoot, a little blossom from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The stump that was thought to be dead is sprouting. There's life there after all. What does this image mean? Note that it's not the stump of David or of David's house. It's the stump of Jesse. Jesse, of course, was David's father. So the image implies even when the line of Davidic kings comes to an end, there will still be hope. But the king will come in a surprising way. God doesn't give up on his promises, even when David's dynasty Looks, nothing like, looks like nothing more than a stump. When David's dynasty has quit being faithful to God's word, when they've rebelled against God, God is nevertheless faithful to keep his promises. You might be hoping to get something on Christmas that you've been hinting at for weeks, and your family may not have picked up on the hints, you know, the, the dog-eared magazines you've left all around the house and catalogs and those, the Amazon tabs you've left open, maybe they didn't notice all those things. And you're going to be disappointed. But God is always faithful to his promises. And so our hope in his promises will never be disappointed. We'll never be disappointed. It doesn't mean it's easy. This stump looks dead. And yet God is faithful even to this stump, and there's new life that comes out of it. Not only does this image of a stump signify that people have given up on the Davidic rulers, it also implies, in contrast to the mighty trees of Lebanon in the previous verse, that this king would come from humble origin. If you are planning for the arrival of God's promised king, the king who had come to set his people free, what would you plan for that arrival? When I was growing up, we used to go to the air show at NAS Whidbey in Oak Harbor. I love getting to go inside different airplanes and helicopters. But the most impressive thing, the highlight, was the years when the Blue Angels were there. You know these Blue Angels? They're, they're uh, F-18 fighter jets that fly in formation 18 inches apart. They zoom around these different formations, passing each other uh, and, and flying in formation. 
but they would come in real low over the top of the crowd. And you'd see this jet go over, and then several seconds later, the rumble of the engines, because the sound travels so much slower, several seconds later, the rumble of the engines would come over you and shake your whole body. I think maybe if I was planning the coming of God's promised king, I'd, I'd try and hire the blue angels. That would be my plan. Something dramatic and something you can't ignore. Blue angels flying over Bethlehem, rumble of jet engines shaking all of Jerusalem. Maybe that's how I would plan the arrival of God's promised king. After all, we know the way the world works. Big, important people come with glory and honor, parades, pomp and circumstance. But that's not how God's promised king comes. Isaiah says the king will come in a surprising way, and that's certainly true. The king comes not with blue angels and a roar that shakes the ground. But when God's promise is fulfilled, the king comes as a little baby. A little baby born to a poor family in the lowliest conditions imaginable. When they go dedicate Jesus on the eighth day and they take the two turtle doves as a sacrifice, if you look back in Leviticus, that's the sacrifice that the poor gave. If you were well-to-do, you would give something like a calf. But if you didn't have very much means, you would give two doves. He came to a poor family, uh, and he was born in a stable, not even in a house, in a stable with animals, in animal urine, in animal feces, and it was cold and smelly. Why would God's promised king come into such poor and humble conditions? Friends, you know as well as I do, our world is full of somebodies, Mr. Big, powerful, important people. But we don't need more out-of-touch, powerful politicians to fix things. They just work themselves into knots. What we need is someone who knows what it's like to be poor and hurting and broken. Someone who knows what it's like to be on the down and outs, who can sympathize with us. That's what we need. And so our first hope that Isaiah gives us is that the king will come in a surprising way. The second hope Isaiah points us to in this passage is that the king will come specially prepared. The king will come specially prepared. What does a king or a ruler need to be prepared to lead his or her people well? Maybe a degree from an Ivy League school, military experience, political experience, wealth. Isaiah tells us that God's king will come specially prepared, but not in the way we expect, not with any of those things. God's king is prepared to rule because God's spirit rests on him. Look at verse 2. The Lord's spirit shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The preparation necessary for God's promised king to rule rightly is endowment with God's own spirit. Like the menorah candle stand in the temple, Isaiah identifies six branches that stem from this one spirit, six aspects of what the spirit brings when he rests on the promised king. And these six things are elaborated in pairs, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and power, of knowledge and fear. This first pair uh, points to the king's ruling attributes of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is the general capacity to have a right judgment in all things. 
Understanding is the ability to get to the heart of an issue. Second, Isaiah points to the king's practical abilities of counsel and might. This echoes back to two of the names from Isaiah 9. Remember in Isaiah 9, the son will be born and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And here we're told that he'll have a spirit of counsel and of might. So it's echoing back to that. This is the same figure that we looked at last week. Well, counsel is the ability to devise a right plan, and might is the power to see that plan through. This is what's necessary for the king's practical abilities. But third and most importantly, Isaiah points to the king's spiritual qualities, that he will have knowledge and fear of the Lord. Knowledge is more than just knowing abstract facts about God. It's not just that this king will be able to recite his catechism. It means that this king will have a personal relationship. He will know God personally in an intimate way. And he will fear the Lord, which throughout the Bible entails moral concern, obedience, and worship. He will understand that God is God and that he deserves to be honored as such. See how this is fulfilled in in Jesus is coming. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, John the Baptist bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. This is at Jesus' baptism. God had said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The king will come specially prepared with the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. But the king will also come specially prepared in the way he dresses. How do we expect a king to dress? In fine clothes, right? With a crown and a scepter. Remember kids in Aladdin that Aladdin needs to, he needs to look like a prince in order to come into the city, right? He's got to be dressed like a king. And adults, we know this is right. After all, how you dress shapes the way the world sees you. And so we say, dress for success. Dress for the job you want, not the job you have, right? But notice in verse 5, this king will come dressed not in fine garments. He will come dressed in righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And his scepter is not a gold-plated staff, but see in verse 4, his scepter is his words. We're told that the rod of his mouth, the scepter that is his mouth, shall strike the earth. In the book of Isaiah, and really in the Old Testament as a whole, the more the kings in David's line disappoint the people, the more their hopes and expectations build up for a future king. We know what this is like. We get disappointed time and again, and it doesn't mean our expectations lower. It means they actually raise, that we have more and more hopes that someday our hopes will be fulfilled. At this point, Israel's hope is for something beyond mere human rule. Israel's hope is that God's own spirit would rest on a coming king so that God himself might rule through the king. 
And yet somehow this king would also be a king who identifies with us and understands our experiences, who is both somehow endowed with God's spirit and yet humble. And what's more, Isaiah says in verses 3 and 4, that what we hope for is a king who doesn't judge based on outward appearances, but a king who sees how things really are and judges with righteousness and equity, with righteousness and fairness. Last year, I was called for jury duty, and as they went through the process of selecting a jury, the accused man was sitting at the defense table facing all of the potential jury members. If you've done jury duty before, you know what it's like. You sit there, and they go through asking various questions, screening out potentially biased jurors. And I was not selected to be on the jury, and it was probably a good thing, because the whole time I couldn't help but thinking as I looked at this accused man that he looked guilty. This guy looked to me as squirrely as all get up. And even if the, a, a prosecutor didn't make his case and I was a jury member and I said, you know what, you haven't proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did the crime, in my heart I would know this guy probably did it. He was just squirrely looking. Now, if you ever wind up in court, God forbid, if you ever wind up in court, that's not what you want in a juror. Someone who looks at you and just thinks this guy is squirrely looking and thinks that you're probably guilty before they ever hear the case. Right? We don't want someone that judges based on outward appearance. This is the reality that Isaiah points to in verse 3, though, is that humans judge based on impressions and hearsay. That's one of the questions they ask when you're getting selected for a jury, especially for a big case. Have you seen news stories about this? Are you aware of this case? Right? Because hearsay shapes what we think. Appearances shape what we think. But we read in verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge and with justice he will give decisions. What we need is a king who will judge justly, who sees how things really are. A king who will come specially prepared with righteousness and faithfulness in order to judge justly. There's a third hope that Isaiah points us to in this passage, a third hope. It's this. The king will come to bring peace. The king will come to bring peace. Two weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 9, we talked about how the peace that this promised child brings starts with peace between God and man. That before there can be peace between nations and family members and people, there has to be peace between God and man. Here we see that the coming king brings righteousness and fairness. He brings justice, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. But his goal is not to destroy the earth. His goal is to bring peace. When we visited the San Diego Zoo, one of the most surprising things that we saw there was not any exotic animal, but it was a Labrador retriever. And the kids remembered this too as, as one of the most striking things. Apparently, in order to socialize young cheetahs, they pair them with dogs. And so when we came around the corner to the African savanna exhibit, and there's a cheetah, what's laying down next to the cheetah but a Labrador retriever? And they were snuggling up, and this dog would go around and make sure the cheetah was okay. Uh, and it was a remarkable thing to see. And it seemed like something like this is going on in the end of our passage here. It's sort of the ancient Hebrew version of YouTube unusual animal friendship videos. Uh, Isaiah points 
though with these images, what he's pointing at is peace and true peace. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den. This third hope that Isaiah points us to goes beyond simply a king who will judge justly, but a judge who will bring peace. Isaiah gives us hope that one day this coming king would even reverse the curses of Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he shaped it into a very good world. And he put his people in it, and he would walk in the garden with his people, and he wanted to live at peace with his people. But the servant tempted Adam and Eve, and the people rebelled against God and ate the fruit. And so God punished the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and you shall bruise his heel. And yet here in Isaiah, there's hope that even this curse someday could be undone that the little child might even play with a cobra. Mothers, can you imagine being in a scenario where you tell your kids to go out in the backyard and play with the cobra for a few minutes? Let me make dinner. Go play with the cobra. Uh, it's just, it's, it, it's almost unbelievable. But Isaiah here is pointing us down the road to an ultimate hope. This promised king would do more than just redeem his people. He will redeem all of creation. He will even undo the curses of the fall that came from human rebellion. In Isaiah 65, Isaiah repeats this hope of animals having peace with each other. And he says that the Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth. This king comes to recreate the heavens and the earth, to bring peace to all creation, to relieve the groaning of the world. This image we see here goes beyond simply undoing the curse. After all, nothing in Genesis implies that wolves and lambs ever would have been friends, even if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, or that leopards and goats would take naps together. But Isaiah's hope points that things actually will end up better than they were to start with. This is the consummation of all things, that God himself becomes man for our sake, he dies for our sake, he rises again, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and yet, this God become man for our sake will come again. And the God-man will dwell with us on the earth. And so things are better than they ever were before. And how does this transformation take place? The very end of verse, in verse 9, Isaiah says that when the king comes, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. The king will come with the Lord's spirit a spirit of knowledge and fear. And the king will come to bring peace by teaching others to know the Lord. And as the earth is filled with this knowledge of the Lord, as people come into personal relationship with God, then peace begins to emerge. If the hope of Isaiah 9 that we looked at the last two weeks, that a child would be born for us and would bear names that rightfully belong to God, if that hope of Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in the stable and the manger, in the incarnation of the Son of God, then this hope that we're looking at, this final hope that there would be peace 
throughout all creation points us forward to the second coming, to the return of the king. And after all, this is what Advent is about. We look at the longing of Old Testament saints to teach us how to rightly long for the second coming of the Messiah. And so I ask you again, where is your hope? What are you anticipating? What would make you happy? Guys, I know that some new power tools, or uh, in my case, you know, one of those, uh, see, here's my problem. I go to the hardware store. And I don't know the name of any tools, but I know it exists. But one of those doohickeys that you get your oil filter off with conveniently, like that would, that would make changing the oil a lot easier for me. That I wouldn't have to use pliers and bend the filter every time I do it, right? But I know that even as exciting as that would be to get in my stocking at Christmas, hint, hint, kids, no. Uh, <laughs> I know it's the last minute here, but uh, as exciting as that would be, it's never going to fulfill my deepest longings and my deepest hopes. But what really could make you happy? Think about it, friends. Would a new home or moving to a new community really deal with the underlying problems that you face? If you switch jobs and careers, would you finally be satisfied? Is your hope that the 2020 elections will bring changes and you can finally have peace? Friends, I assure you, whatever political party you vote for, it's not going to bring true peace. Or is your hope maybe for younger people that if you could just start dating, or for slightly older people who are already dating, that if you could just date the right person, you would feel loved and valued? None of those things are bad in themselves. Tools to change the oil on the car are good. Dating is a, not a bad thing. Loving someone is not a bad thing. These are good things in and of themselves. But as ultimate hopes, none of these things can satisfy your deepest longings. None of these things can sustain you. Dream hopes, dream homes and jobs, politicians, even lovers will someday let you down if they're your ultimate hope. Because our deepest longings, our deepest hopes recognize that even creation itself, the animal world, is a bit out of joint, that things aren't as they should be. If you watch these BBC David Attenborough animal documentaries and you see the snow leopard and he hardly has any food to eat, you think something about this is just not quite right. Things aren't how they should be. But this ultimate hope of Isaiah, that even creation will one day at peace, be at peace, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Lions and goats getting along together and lambs and wolves all being friends. It sounds too good to be true. But God was faithful to his promises to David. Promises that also seem too good to be true. In a totally surprising way, a shoot from the stump of Jesse brings hope and new life into the world. God was faithful to that promise as we celebrate its fulfillment at Christmas. And so we can trust that God will be faithful to fulfill all of his promises, even the promise that all creation will be put right someday. This king came to bring peace at Christmas. He brought peace between God and man. And this king will come again to bring peace to all of creation. Earlier, I briefly mentioned John's gospel, where John the Baptist said that he saw the spirit descend on Jesus at his baptism and remain on him. And John's gospel, right before that, begins by explaining the theology of Christmas, what's going on behind the scenes. 
Remember John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then a little bit farther down, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The son of God comes into the world at Christmas. That's what we celebrate. He came into the world. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us to show us the grace and truth of God. He died to bring peace between us and God. He rose again to bring us life. The Spirit of God descended on the incarnate Son of God to empower His human ministry. This whole mission is the mission of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But this mission of the triune God in the world doesn't stop when the Son died, rose, and ascended. No, later on in, his in the Gospel of John, Jesus promises his disciples. He says, I'm going to go to the Father, but I'm going to send the Spirit of God to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that I will take, he will take what was mine and give it to you. The spirit of the Lord that Isaiah foretold would rest on the promised king, Jesus says, will also be given to the followers of this king. After his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples in John 20, peace be with you. He came to bring peace. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The promise that this coming king will bring peace and will restore and consummate all creation is not an excuse for us just to sit back and do nothing, that things will be right in the end, pie in the sky when you die, that sort of thing. No, this king gives the spirit that rests on him to his followers, to you. And this king sends his followers into the world to spread the knowledge of God throughout the earth. The earth becomes full of the knowledge of the Lord. People come to know the Lord throughout the earth because Jesus sends his disciples into the world, just as he was sent into the world, empowered with the Lord's Spirit, just as he was empowered with the Lord's Spirit. This triune mission of God continues even this day through you, the people of Jesus, the servants of this great king. So this last Sunday of Advent, I have two challenges for you. The first challenge is this, where is your hope? Is it in temporal things that will disappoint you? In a job or a lover or that your family will finally be normal this Christmas? Whatever it is, it will ultimately disappoint. And yet there is a hope that can sustain you even in the darkest of hours. A hope that can sustain you even in the direst of circumstances. This hope is the promises of God that the king that he sent once and that came will come again. But there's a second challenge for you. Maybe you would say this morning, my hope is in the king and the return of the king. Then my challenge to you is, are you participating in his work? Are you participating in God's mission to the world? Are you spreading the knowledge of the Lord throughout the earth? I don't know what this looks like in your particular situation. Maybe it means talking to a family member at Christmas parties this week. Maybe it means adjusting the way you behave at work to represent Jesus better to your coworkers. Maybe it means supporting missionaries like Abby and Monse that we heard from last week. 
I don't know exactly what it looks like. But my second challenge to you is, put your, right, first challenge is put your hope in this coming king who will not disappoint. My second challenge is, if your hope is in this king, then you are sent into the world and called to participate in his work. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we turned away from you in the garden. And when we turned away from you, our hearts got bent out of shape. And as a result, we're willing to put our hopes and our desires in all sorts of goofy things. Of course, they don't look goofy at the time when we're caught up applying for jobs or in a new relationship or uh, in all sorts of things. We think that this is something that might finally satisfy us. We think even material things that we will get on Christmas Day might satisfy us. And yet we know before the week's over that we'll start to see problems with those things that we get. We'll start to see problems after months or years in new jobs and even in our significant others and our lovers. Our hearts are bent out of shape and so they put the hope, our hopes in things that can't support our hopes. So I ask even this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would straighten out our hearts, that our hopes might be placed in your promises and in your king, in the one thing that can sustain our hope, in the one object that we can place our ultimate hope in. And gracious Lord, as we put our hope in the return of the king, let us not be lazy trusting that he will come and fix everything, but let us work in hope, let us labor in hope, at the work that he has sent us to, that we would not shy away from the world, but that we would embrace our task of being sent into the world and of bearing witness faithfully to our King, Jesus Christ, born on Christmas Day these 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, our King, who will come again to bring ultimate peace to all creation. Use us, gracious Lord, in your mission. As we close our service, uh, let us use this confession of faith printed on the third page of your worship guide. We confess our faith together with many generations of Christians who have confessed using this confession.